the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had kept every promise to the children of Israel. He miraculously set them free from the land of Egypt. He provided food and water for them in the desert wilderness. God showed He was with them by being present in a cloud of smoke in the tabernacle. But when it came time for the Israelites to go into the Promised Land, the people rejected God's plan and were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb when they were trying to convince them otherwise. Now, God has to deal with their rebellion and their unwillingness to trust His Word. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 14, verse 12. Well, as we have been journeying with Jesus, or learning how to journey with Jesus by looking at how Israel journeyed with the Lord in the book of Numbers... We have come to chapter 14, which is the pivotal chapter in the book of Numbers. This was one of the most pivotal moments, in fact, in Israel's history, the entire nation. Because on the edge of the promised land, instead of choosing to trust God, they chose to stone the two men who try to revive their faith. We saw, we ended last Sunday night, that God decided to intervene. That he decided to say, enough is enough. The only question now at this point is, what will his judgment be? And so as we study one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, may we see the foolishness of trusting ourselves, the seriousness of disobeying the Lord, and God's amazing grace in the midst of it all. So chapter 14, and we'll start it up here in verse 11. I'll read it, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 12. So the Lord appeared to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, verse 11, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Those are the questions that we addressed last week. So the Lord says, since they won't trust me, verse 12, here is God's plan. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. Well, that's a change of plan. The Lord says, okay, Moses, this is what I'm going to do at this point. I'm going to kill all of them, and then we'll take your family, and we'll make a nation that's greater and mightier after them. When God came onto the scene, he asked an important question. What's it going to take for them to trust me? And Hebrews eleven six says that it's impossible to please God without faith. So he must deal with their unbelief. He's not pleased with it, which has led to their disobedience. He must deal with that. So he says, I'm going to send a terminal plague. 
I'm going to terminate our relationship. That's what it means to disinherit them. They're not going to be my people anymore. And then I will still keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it'll be through your family, Moses. It may take a few hundred years to get back to this point, but we'll be okay. Did Israel deserve this? Yes, they did. You bet they did. God had explained the consequences of rejecting his way when they entered into a relationship with him on Mount Sinai. And they agreed to it and the consequences that came with it. So now that they violated that agreement, God is 100% just to wipe them out. However, is this the first time we've been here with Israel? Not at all. Turn to Exodus 32. You know the story. They go and make the golden calf. Verse seven. And the Lord said unto Moses, go, get you down. For your people, which he already, so he's disinherited them in that sense. He calls them your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way, which I commanded them. For they have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. This is not the first time God has threatened to wipe them out. In numbers, this happened right here in the book of Exodus. Why does God respond like this both times? Well, God's justice requires him to judge Israel. If God just lets Israel do this, he becomes an unjust God, which he is not. But what's interesting about God, he is different than we are. He is similar to us, but he is also very different. Justice isn't God's only attribute. See, God didn't wipe them out in previous occasions because Moses appealed to God's other attributes like his mercy and his love. And Moses does the same exact thing here in Numbers 14. So let's go back to Numbers 14. In verses 13 through 19, we're gonna see Moses' prayer of intercession for the nation. So God says, I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm gonna disinherit them. They're not gonna be my people anymore. And I'm gonna make of you a greater nation. Verse 13. And Moses said unto the Lord, well, then the Egyptians shall hear it, For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that you, Lord, are among this people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of a fire by night. Now, if you shall kill all this people as one man, Then the nations which have heard the fame of you will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. Moses intercedes. Now he's done this before on a couple occasions. And he intercedes the same way every time. He intercedes for Israel on the basis of God's character and reputation. What he knows about God's character and what will bring God the most glory. He starts off here in his prayer with God's reputation. And he says, God, men have heard something about you because of what you've done. He says, if you do this, then the Egyptians shall hear about it. For you brought this people in your might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. He says, Lord, if you do this, people will misread other aspects of your character. I know you're just, and I know you have to do something. But if you do this, they will not understand you in all your character. You know, Egypt exerted a lot of influence in the land of Canaan during this time period. We know this from various documents that were discovered. News of Egypt's decimation traveled quickly. A powerful God was leading the former slaves of Egypt to go conquer their land next. 
And because of how God set Israel free, he had set himself apart from all the other deities that people worshiped out there. What did God do? Well, he dwelt in the midst of his people. Did any other of these other idols do that? No way. They were just wood or stone or whatever. They didn't dwell in the midst of their people. He didn't speak through priests or prophets, but he spoke directly to his people. Face to face, Moses says. None of these other idols did that. And then thirdly, he wasn't an idol, but a living God that could be seen at all times of the day. If you want to go, who's your God? They can go out and go, he's right there. Look at him. His presence is right there in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They could see his presence there and they would know that he is alive and he is real. Now you have to understand something. Sometimes they say, Lord, show me your glory. And we sing songs about that. And what we mean by that is, Lord, we want to experience all the of you that we can experience in this body. But can you imagine how terrifying it would be if your idea of having a faith or whatever is you, you go to your little temple and you bring your little fruit and you put it around the little idol guy with seven eyes and 14 arms and, and you'd be like, oh, whatever your name is, please bless my crops. And then you leave. He doesn't talk back to you. He doesn't move. He doesn't do anything. Can you imagine the terrifying concept if you're like a scout like hey we've heard about this army and we got to find out if this is true and you're out there and you're spying and you're like what in god's name is that then you see this smoky pillar and fire if you were to go close enough you would hear his voice speaking at times and the thunder and the lightning and you would have been absolutely terrified Canaanites might have their own gods, but none of them were like this. In fact, Joshua uh, chapter 2 verses 9 through 11, when the harlot Rahab protects the spies, they ask, why did you do this? And she explains, we're terrified. We know you're coming and you're going to wipe the floor with us. We don't have a God like you do. They knew they were in trouble. That's sad as they fight anyway. Isn't that sad? Why not just surrender? But we do the same thing, don't we? So Rahab says, just remember me. When you come and you conquer, please keep me and my family safe because I don't want to follow these other gods anymore. I want to follow your God. The Canaanites were terrified. She said their hearts were melting. Moses says, even though Israel's rebelled against you, Lord, rebelled against your plan, even though you could keep your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through me, killing Israel will undo everything that you've revealed about yourself, Lord. Everything. So he says in verse 15, this is what man will think about you if you do this. For now, if you shall kill all this people as one man or in one stroke, if you were going to, just like you were going to execute one individual, if you're just going to kill them in one stroke, then the nations which have heard of your fame, they will speak saying, well, because the Lord wasn't able, he wasn't strong enough to bring this people into the land which he swore unto them. Therefore, he has slain them in the wilderness. They will think, oh, I guess that God wasn't too big and bad after all. He wasn't strong enough to actually do what he said he'd do, so he had to wipe them out in the wilderness. It will communicate that God, the God of Israel, wasn't powerful enough to overcome Israel's frailty, which would make him just like every other idol out there. When you and I appeal to God's reputation in our requests, the Lord is much more likely to respond. Why? Because then my prayers are out of love for him. They're not to be consumed upon my own lusts. Isn't that what James chapter four, verse three says? It says that you have not because you ask not and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss because you want to consume it upon your own desires. See, when I'm praying and going, Lord, I want what glorifies you. I want what causes people to know you better. I want what's gonna cause your name to spread and the gospel to spread. Don't you think God's gonna be more likely to answer that prayer? Rather than just say, oh God, I don't like this. Can you please change it? Not that God doesn't answer those prayers sometimes too. Wiping Israel out isn't the best plan because while it would fulfill God's justice, it would go against, Moses says, his all-powerfulness here. And so let me ask you tonight, do you believe God's all-powerful? 
Do you believe that he can overcome your issues to accomplish his plan for you and his promises to you? I wholeheartedly believe that. I wouldn't be here today if that wasn't the case. He has to over. I remember, you know, when I came to the Lord, called me the ministry, and I said, Lord, you got, a, you got a serious case on your hand here. If you're calling me to this, I don't know if you can pull this off. I'm not going into this unless you promise me you can pull this off. The Lord said, I call the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I call the weak things of the world to confound the strong. The base things of the world to confound the noble. Will, can you be base, noble, a base, uh, a weak? Can you be that for me? And I was like, oh, yeah, I qualify for that really well. I was like, well, then let me confound the wise through your weakness. He is fully capable to accomplish his plan for me and his promises to me despite my frailty. This is an important truth to understand. God will never act in a way that satisfies one of his character traits, but violates his other character traits as a result. He will never do that. God will never do that. So while wiping them out might fulfill God's justice, it would go against his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence. It would also go against his mercy. So that can't be the action the Lord wants to take. And Moses is appealing to that right here. God's sovereignty will never violate his love. God's justice will never violate his mercy. You may be saying, well, wait a second, Will. Isn't justice the opposite of mercy? Isn't sovereignty the opposite of, I mean, either he's in charge regardless, or I mean, how do these things meet? How do they mesh? How can such seemingly opposite traits find a meeting place? Well, this is why the Lord says to Isaiah, he goes, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. See, they don't make sense to us. And that's why we have all sorts of theological systems out there. And then we put God in a box. And so we take one attribute of his, whether it's his love. And and we say, God is love. That supersedes everything. And then you come up with Rob Bell's heresy of universalism. That is not biblical. That is not something we believe. And if you're into his stuff, I must exhort you to get into the scriptures so you can see that that's no good. On the other hand, we say, oh, he's sovereign. And then we get all into his sovereignty and we take his love and we kick it out of the world like a little puppy dog. We say, ah, forget you, love. And then we start coming coming up with ideas that God created people to go to hell when the Bible doesn't teach that. God never acts in a way that violates all of his attributes because he's one. You can't carve him up into pieces and go, well, he's sovereign and that's how, this is how he works here. And he's love and that's why he works this way here. And he's, you know, he's this and this is why he works this way here. They all are in harmony together. That's the, the Shema, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You can't carve them up into pieces. That's what, that's what the pantheons are. They give and they give attributes to all these different deities. As Christians, we have to be careful not to do the same thing with the Lord. He is one God. And all these attributes, they all find their harmony in him. While these attributes may seem in opposition to us, they aren't opposite in any way to him. In fact, they all find their meeting points in him. And so Moses says, Lord, don't do this. This is not going to reflect you accurately. We have to ask the question, was Moses pointing out something that God didn't realize? I mean, was God up on the throne and Moses goes, now, Lord, this plan of yours, I don't think it's going to accurately represent you. And Lord goes, ah, you're right. I'm love too. That's not what's happening in heaven. God's, God's not being informed by Moses. Moses isn't telling him something he didn't know. But see, here's the way God works with us. God is seeking for someone to show faith in his character because that's how he decides to act in our midst. You say, how does that work with his sovereignty? I don't know. But he says that's how he works. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. He says, if you're not going to ask in faith, don't expect him to answer you. He's longing. He's longing for people who just trust him, who will look at his character, look at their situation and go, God, this doesn't seem to match. So I'm leaning on your character. I'm trusting in who you are. 
no matter what this says to me. And there, I'm going to stay. And when we do that, we can ride out the storm. You know, this week was really hectic for me and my family. I won't give you the gory details, but it's just, it's been a hectic couple weeks. But I was really irritated with humanity. I'd gotten bad customer service from a couple different situations that we had with our, our family costs and stuff. And I was just angry. I was just like, Lord, I'm like, people just stink. Customer service has died in our culture, you know, or, you know, I'm dramatic. So I get like that. Well, I hadn't had my devotion that day because I was grumpy and bitter. And, you know, I'm pouring my heart out of complaint to my wife. And she's like, hey, how about you seek the Lord? And I'm like, fine, whatever. And, you know, and I open my Bible and I start reading. And there I am as I'm reading through it. The Lord meets me. You know, he brings the passage to to my attention uh, as I'm reading through, I'm in Daniel right now, in Daniel 3, and where the three friends of Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to pray about whether we need to bow down to your idol or not. And and, and rest assured that if you throw us into the furnace, the Lord's going to deliver us from you. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol. And the Lord's just like, well, what if I don't get you through some of these messes or you got to pay extra or whatever? What are you going to do? And I was like, Lord, you are going to rescue me. But even if you don't, you know what? I need to just walk with you. This is where we come to that place where we put our trust in the Lord. God said what he said, so somebody would go, hey, Lord, would you do this? Because this seems to be more in line with your character. And then the Lord has an excuse to forgive. The Lord has an excuse to pardon. You know, what does he say? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Do you know where that, that verse, that beautiful verse, we have songs that are sung of it after it. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from Isaiah chapter one, which is one of the ugliest chapters in all the Bible, where he describes the idolatry, where he, God gives a very visual uh, explanation of how their religious practices make him feel. He says, your Worship services that you come to worship me, your songs that you sing, they make me vomit. And yet he says to them, come, let us reason together. And the Lord says, that's what he's longing for. That someone like Moses would come and say, Lord, I know things are bad. And I know you gotta, you gotta deal with us. But at the same time, Lord, in wrath, would you remember mercy? I think it's Habakkuk who prayed that same, that was his exact prayer. He said, Lord, I've heard of your ways and I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, would you do them again? I know we don't deserve it. I look around and I just see, just, we're just bad. But Lord, would you do it again? And in wrath, would you remember mercy? He cries out to the Lord. And the Lord, by the end of that, it's a small little postcard in the Old Testament. By the end of chapter three, he says he's gonna rejoice over them with dancing and singing and all this stuff that you would never imagine would be there. The Lord is so longing to show mercy. I wonder if, if, if we as, as Christians in our nation would just cry out to God instead of crying out to Facebook or crying out to the president or crying out to somebody else. We just cry out to God and say, Lord, I know what we deserve. I know where we're at. We've murdered babies. We've, we've got this, all this mess going on. We just go, but God, will you just, in, in your wrath that you have to bring, would you remember mercy? I say it to you, but it comes right back to me. Well, I do that. And God, would you please do something? We don't deserve it, but by golly, we need it. And that's where Moses is praying here, Lord, I know, I know you want to do something different here. Because with even the smallest amount of faith, God can move on our behalf. And that's what Moses is doing. He's exercising complete confidence and trust in the Lord and who he is. He says, so now, verse 17, I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great, according as you have spoken. Moses says, Lord, why don't you take this horrible situation and show the whole world what I already know is true about you, that you are bigger than our failures, that you're bigger than our sin. We sang it tonight. Our sin was great, but Jesus is greater, right? 
Would you show that you're able to take even the most stubborn and disobedient people and accomplish what you've set out to do? That will show how strong you are. That will show how great you are. You might be saying, man, that's a pretty audacious prayer. How how does Moses know that God's able to overcome our sin? Because God said he was. He says in verse 17, according as you have spoken, saying, and then he quotes Exodus 34, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, doesn't just ignore sin, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. The basis of his request isn't what they deserve, but it's who God is. And who is God? He's this. No, he doesn't just ignore sin, but he's patient. He's of great mercy. And he forgives iniquity and transgression. That's who he is. She says, Lord, I know who you are because when I was there on that mountain and I prayed, show me your glory, you did. And you declared all these things to me. So God, these are your people who I know you love despite everything they've done or will do. And I know you're for them even when they're not for you. And I know you want to forgive them. So Lord, will you please do so like you've done up to this point? He says, Lord, pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people, verse 19 according unto the greatness of your mercy. That's that word chesed, your loyal love, your unconditional devotion. Will you pardon them according to the greatness of your love? And as you have already forgiven this people from Egypt, even up till now, Lord, it's just been one big journey of forgiveness. What's one more time? Lord, will you please forgive and be gracious? I love that Moses doesn't accuse God of being unfair. He knows that Israel deserves to be wiped out. But he also knows that's not what they need. They need forgiveness. And so he prays, Lord, you've been so good to us up to this point. Will you please do so again? What a great way to pray. (laughs) How can God say no to that? He can't. Now, does God answer it exactly as Moses prays? He says for a full pardon. And not exactly. Because while God can forgive them, they haven't really changed their attitude. So even though he can scrap the previous plan, which truthfully was not God's plan... He can't let a disobedient people go into the land. Forgiveness doesn't mean a removal of consequences altogether. For the Bible also says, what a man sows, that shall he reap. So verse 20, here we see God's response to Moses. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. He pardons the two things he said he was going to do. He said, I'll wipe them out and I'm going to disinherit them. They won't be my people anymore. And the Lord rescinds both of those judgments from verse 12 here in verse 20. He was not going to wipe them out and he's not going to break off his relationship with them. But because they rejected his leadership and threatened to murder Joshua and Caleb and continued to doubt him, he has to deal with that. Can I just gently say to you, please don't become upset when you confess your sin to God and you ask him to forgive you, but you still experience some practical consequences for it. Please don't do that. Confession and forgiveness restores our relationship with God but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card every time you do something you shouldn't do and consequences result. That should never be our mindset. Now, I have found frequently when I come to the Lord and I'm like, Lord, I, I do not deserve to be out of the mess I've created for myself, but Lord, I don't see a way out of it. Would you please lead me through this mess? I have found that God is even then so gracious and merciful and frequently he sets my feet into a much more stable place and I don't have to go through it as bad as I thought it was. But then there's those few times when the Lord has said to me, well, you're not really going to learn this lesson unless I let the consequences stand. 
I remember there was a time where I got three tickets in the span. No, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase. I got pulled over three times in the span of like two weeks. You probably need to change your driving habits when the youth group nicknames you Speed Racer on the way to a conference. The third time I got pulled over, the first two times, the Lord showed me mercy, I didn't get a ticket. And the third time, God gave me the meanest, hardest, had the worst day cop in Central Florida. He walked up and he didn't even ask me anything. He had a ticket already in hand to hand to me. And as he's walking up, I heard that still small voice in the back of my mind saying, don't even try to get out of this one. The Lord was like, you're not going to learn. I remember as I sat there with that ticket in my hand and the Lord was like, Will, what if you're driving like this and you're cutting off people that come to your church? What about the maybe people you're sharing the gospel with and you're cutting them off? What is that going to do? Are you going to learn from this? That was a good lesson for me. So there are times that the Lord says, no, I'm keeping the consequences because I need you to learn the seriousness of this. And in particular, when they hadn't been repentant yet, the consequences of some sort remain. So the Lord says in verse 21, but as I truly live, I'll pardon them. I'm not gonna cut them off. They'll be my people still. I won't disinherit them. I'm not gonna wipe them out. But as truly as I live, which God is alive and real, he says, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The earth will be filled with the true representation of who he is when all is said and done. When Jesus comes to rule and reign, all the things that people said about God, all the false accusations that were made against him, all the critiques, they will all come to naught. When he comes and he comes to rule and reign, all of that will be gone and done. He will have an accurate representation of himself everywhere and his glory will fill the earth. God is loving and forgiving, but that is never at the expense of him being just. Sin and disbelief have consequences. Rejecting God's word and promises will lead to missing out on the blessings that he desires to give us. The Israelites rejected God's plan and it cost them. But God was merciful and still is today. It is never too late to turn back to Him, to repent from wherever there is compromise in our lives and trust Him. We don't have to stay in the wilderness when our merciful Heavenly Father is willing to walk forward with us. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.